0: A note to my podcast feed listeners, what you're about to hear is another episode from the new series I've been working on called Short Reads. Short Reads is basically just me reading a passage from a work of philosophical literature and then offering a few brief insights into the text afterward to help you think about the text and to find ways to apply the concepts in your own life. These episodes are released weekly, and as an anchor podcast listener, I encourage you to keep listening as long as you like them. If you're finding the series especially enjoyable, I'd like to invite you to head on over to my Locals community page at exitingthecave.locals.com, where you can become a subscriber. A $3 subscription will give you early access to these episodes, as well as to my videos, to my philosophical musings in essay form, and especially to a community of other like-minded listeners where you can discuss these podcasts or any other philosophical topics you find compelling. I'm looking forward to meeting you over there. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Exiting the Cave, Short Reads. We're continuing with the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius. This week we move on to Book 2, Chapter 7, and the last of the four false pursuits of happiness, which is glory. Aristotle would have called this the honor-seeking or political life, and Boethius seems to have something more cartoonish in mind. But the basic principle is the same. Seeking happiness by way of reputation is a fool's errand. Let's listen in and see how the conversation goes, shall we? Then I said, Thou knowest thyself that ambition for worldly success hath but little swayed me. Yet I have desired opportunity for action lest virtue, in default of exercise, should languish away. Then she. This is that last infirmity, which is able to allure men's minds which, of noble quality, have not yet been molded to any exquisite refinement by the perfection of the virtues. I mean the love of glory, and fame for high services rendered to the commonweal. And yet consider with me how poor and unsubstantial a thing this glory is. The whole of this earth's globe as thou hast learned from the demonstrations of astronomy compared with the expanse of heaven is found no bigger than a point. That is to say if measured by the vastness of heaven's sphere it is held to occupy absolutely no space at all. Now of this so insignificant portion of the universe It is about a fourth part, as Ptolemy's proofs have taught us, which is inhabited by living creatures known to us. If from this fourth part you take away in thought all that is usurped by seas and marshes, or lies a vast waste of waterless desert, barely is an exceeding narrow area left for human habitation. You then, who are shut in and imprisoned in this merest fraction of a point's space, do ye take thought for the blazoning of your fame, for the spreading abroad of your renown? Why, what amplitude or magnificence has glory when confined to such narrow and petty limits? Besides, the straitened bounds of this scant dwelling place are inhabited by many nations differing widely in speech, in usages, in modes of life. To many of these, from the difficulty of travel, from diversities of speech, from want of commercial intercourse, the fame not only of individual men but even of cities is unable to reach. Why in Cicero's days, as he himself somewhere points out, the fame of the Roman Republic had not yet crossed the Caucasus, and yet by that time her name had grown formidable to the Parthians and other nations of those parts. Seest thou, then, how narrow, how confined is the glory ye take pains to spread abroad and extend? Can the fame of a single Roman penetrate where the glory of the Roman name itself fails to pass? Moreover, the customs and institutions of different races agree not together, so that what is deemed praiseworthy in one country is thought punishable in another. Wherefore, if any love the applause of fame, it shall not profit him to publish his name among many peoples. Then each must be content to have the range of his glory limited to his own people. The splendid immortality of fame must be confined within the bounds of a single race. Once more, how many of high renown in their own times have been lost in oblivion for want of a record? Indeed, of what avail are written records even, which, with their authors, are overtaken by the dimness of age, after a somewhat longer time? But ye, when ye think on future fame, fancy it an immortality that ye are begetting for yourselves. Why, if thou scannest the infinite spaces of eternity, what room hast thou left for rejoicing in the durability of thy name? Verily, if a single moment's space be compared with 10,000 years, it has a certain relative duration, however little, since each period is definite. But this same number of years, I, and a number many times as great, cannot even be compared with endless duration. For indeed, finite periods may, in a sort, be compared one with another. But a finite and an infinite never. So it comes to pass that fame, though it extend to ever so wide a space of years, if it be compared to never lessening eternity, seems not short-lived merely, but altogether nothing. But as for you, ye know not how to act aright, unless it be to court the popular breeze, and win the empty applause of the multitude. Nay, ye abandon the superlative worth of conscience and virtue, and ask for recompense from the poor words of others. Let me tell thee how wittily one did mock the shallowness of this sort of arrogance. A certain man assailed one, who had put on the name of philosopher as a cloak to pride and vainglory, not for the practice of real virtue, and added... Now shall I know thou art philosopher, if thou bearest reproaches calmly and patiently. The other, for a while affected to be patient, and, having endured to be abused, cried out derisively, Now do you see that I am a philosopher? The other, with biting sarcasm, retorted, I should have, hadst thou held thy peace. Moreover, what concern have choice spirits? For it is of such men we speak, men who seek glory by virtue. What concern, I say, have these with fame, after the dissolution of the body in death's last hour? For if men die wholly, which our reasonings forbid us to believe, there is no such thing as glory at all since he whom the glory is said to belong is altogether non-existent. But if the mind, conscious of its own rectitude, is released from earthly prison and seeks heaven in free flight, doth it not despise all earthly things when it rejoices in its deliverance from earthly bonds and enters upon the joys of heaven? O oh, let him who Pants for glory's garden, deeming glory all in all. Look and see how wide the heaven expandeth, Earth's enclosing bounds, how small. Shame it is if your proud swelling glory may not fill this narrow room. Why then strive so vainly, O ye proud ones, To escape your mortal doom? Though your name to distant regions bruited, Or the earth be widely spread, Though full many a lofty-sounding title On your house its luster shed, Death at all this pomp and glory spurneth When his hour draweth nigh, Shrouds alike the exalted and the humble, Levels lowest and most high. Where are now the bones of staunch Fabricius, Brutus, Cato, Where are they? Lingering fame and a few graven letters doth their empty name display. But to know the great dead is not given from a gilded name alone. Nay, ye all alike must lie forgotten. Tis not you that fame makes known. Fondly do ye deem life's little hour lengthened by fame's mortal breath. There but waits you when this too is taken, at the last, a second death. So the central question in this chapter is why is glory not a path to happiness? Boethius' opening objection may at first appear to be a disingenuous protestation from false humility. What, me? No, I'd never seek worldly success. I'm just a lowly philosopher. Hilarious as this interpretation is, it's a mistake. What's actually happening here is a simultaneous appeal to Aristotle and Plato. Firstly, he's making an explicit appeal to Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, in which Aristotle argues that virtue is something that is present in what we do as much as it is in what we are. His argument can be boiled down to two quotes from Book 1 of the Nicomachean Ethics. To wit, Book 1, Chapter 5, Possession of virtue seems actually compatible with being asleep, or with lifelong inactivity, and further, with the greatest sufferings and misfortunes. But a man who was living so, no one would call happy unless he were maintaining a thesis at all costs. Book 1, Chapter 8. With those who identify happiness with virtue, or one of the specific virtues, our account is in harmony. For... To virtue belongs virtuous activity, but it makes no small difference whether we place the chief good in the possession or in the use, in the state of mind, or in activity. For the state of mind may exist without producing any good result at all, as in a man who is asleep or in some other way quite inactive, but the activity cannot exist without producing a good result. For one who has the activity will of necessity be acting and acting well. As in the Olympic Games, it is not the most beautiful and the strongest that are crowned, but those who compete, for it is some of these that are victorious. So those who act win, and rightly win, the noble and good things in life. We should be careful to note here that Aristotle is not saying that those who act rightly will necessarily achieve the noble and good things in life. What he is saying can be summarized in an old state lottery slogan in the states. You gotta be in it to win it. Buying a lottery ticket in no way guarantees a win, but not buying a lottery ticket certainly guarantees you won't win. Now, of course, bringing the lottery into this discussion is a bit dicey. I don't want to confuse the discourse on fortune up to this point with what Aristotle considers habits of virtue. The point is that Boethius wants to argue with philosophy that he was not seeking power, the subject of the previous chapter, but was seeking virtue through his remediative association with those who seek power. He wanted, as we heard in the first few chapters of the Consolation, to tutor the powerful in the ways of virtue, and in doing so, win the noble things in life, as Aristotle would put it. Secondly, Boethius is making an appeal to the Republic. As hinted, he claims to have been endeavoring to at least try to turn Theodoric into one of Plato's philosopher kings, an effort that quite obviously failed. As we'll see in coming chapters, if Boethius had paid closer attention to books like the Timaeus, he might not have been so naive about his chances. Someone like Theodoric would have been a soul which had bathed deeply in the river of forgetfulness before choosing the life of a capricious emperor. But more on that later. Philosophy seems to be engaging in a sleight of hand here in response to Boethius. Rather than take him up on the question of whether virtue is found in the having or the doing, she instead chides him for his love of glory. This may seem confusing, because even if we say that Boethius was wrong-headed or naive to want to tutor Theodoric, why would we assume he was doing this in the pursuit of glory rather than virtue? The answer to this question lies in everything that came before in Book 1 and Boethius realizes it. He knows he's been disingenuous with himself. For a whole book, we were constantly harangued by how unjust Theodoric and his court were treating Boethius, and have had to endure many laments from Boethius about his treatment at the hands of Theodoric's agents. What this means is that Boethius here is admitting that actually, he wasn't interested in improving Theodoric's rule. He was interested in receiving accolades from Theodoric, and indeed from the whole of the Western Empire, for his attempt to improve Theodoric's rule. Those are two very different motivations, and so Boethius is drubbing himself through the mouth of philosophy for this mistake. The remainder of the reading is an attempt to refocus on the cosmic scale of justice and Boethius' fleeting temporary role within that cosmos. Philosophy regales us in vivid detail just how small and insignificant we really are and how vain and foolish pursuits of honor and glory are as a result. Finally, Boethius begins to hint at the direction we're headed in philosophy's final sentences. He does this first by implicitly breaking with Aristotle. He tells us that our reasonings forbid us to believe that men die wholly. This is a reference to Aristotle's De Anima. To give a complete treatment to Aristotle's theory of being here would be unwieldy. But I'll just say now that Aristotle believed that individual human beings were not a duality of body encapsulating soul but a compound mixture of body with soul. The right kind of matter compounded with the right kind of form, which is to say, body compounded with soul just is the individual being or person. Being a compound, their separation is impossible. So when a man dies, he literally ceases to be that man. Both the matter and the form are destroyed when the subject is destroyed. So when Boethius finally dies on the rack, what is left is, according to Aristotle, not Boethius' body, but simply a semi-differentiated blob of matter that simply has yet to complete its reassimilation into the prime matter. This really deserves a better, more detailed explanation, but this is the wrong venue for that. So this will have to suffice for now. The point here is, Boethius through the mouth of philosophy is saying that he rejects Aristotle's metaphysics on the question of the soul and instead takes Plato's dualistic metaphysics from the Timaeus as definitive instead. This is important because Boethius's theodicy as we'll see moving into books 4 and 5 is heavily dependent upon the Timaeus. Souls persist beyond the body and move toward a higher, more real realm of existence. There will be more on that point later, but the point here is that this allows philosophy an additional and final way of arguing against temporal or earthly glory. The man who perfects his soul through the pursuit of virtue, virtue as understood from the Nicomachean Ethics, has a reward waiting for him in heaven that far outstrips what might have been possible on earth. To end this week's podcast, I want to leave you with a clip from Carl Sagan. I do not think Sagan was directly influenced by Boethius, but I do think he was heavily influenced by the religious and cultural tradition that began with Boethius. This clip comes from a book called Pale Blue Dot, and it was Sagan's attempt to highlight, through the ironic description of our utter insignificance within the great cosmic story, exactly just how significant our presence here really is, and the responsibility that presence confers on us. The passage is remarkably religious, and in particular, remarkably Christian, though I don't think he would ever admit as much. Notice how closely the language in this passage mirrors the language philosophy used to remind Boethius of his own humble place in God's plan. Where Sagan and Boethius part company, however, is in the question of whether anyone or anything was coming to save us from ourselves. Boethius says yes and tries to make the case through his Neoplatonic meditations in this book. Sagan says no, and that we're on our own, adrift in an ocean of meaninglessness. But he does this ironically again by beautifully describing just how meaningful we really are. The minds on this tiny mode of dust are the one thing in the universe that make all of the rest of its infinite beauty and complexity recognizably beautiful and complex. As with any good scientist, he recognized this. But just like every other scientist, he never really asked himself why that's the case. We children of the Enlightenment don't like to ask that question,
1: because it frightens us. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.